Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. When it comes to the pandemic, we've really been doing a lot of things in a kind of trial-by-fire way. Workers have been sent home to figure it out, and students have been sent home too. And that's been a challenge for educators, you know, right from elementary schools through to universities. We've had to figure out how do we teach people at home, and how do we make it as good as, at least as good as, the education they had when they were actually going into a classroom. Unfortunately, if you read some of the reviews on this, it seems to be that this experiment is getting a failing grade. For a lot of people, watching lectures over Zoom can be a lot less than scintillating, hard to keep focused doing that, and trying to learn outside of a classroom without a teacher or professor there often has not been the easiest thing to do. So the jury is out as to what happens in future. Do we go right back to the old model and say only classrooms work? Or have we really opened the door to at least a hybrid model and maybe a lot more online education? Well, our guest today does think online education is here to stay. Robert H. Frank is an economics professor at Cornell University. He's the author of a book called Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. And recently he wrote a piece for the New York Times where he argued that colleges are not going to back away from the online model. He joins us today to talk about that and also to talk about the implications of that for those who work in higher education. Hello, Robert. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Linda. Good to be with you. Let's talk about this trial by fire. It seems like this has been an an experiment that some people have liked, some people haven't liked when we talk about online education. Yeah, I think you're correct to report that the, the scuttlebutt about the experience this spring after students went home in March from both most institutions was that the online experiment wasn't working particularly well. Uh, I was involved in a course uh, that was taught remotely from spring on, and and our experience was quite mixed too. Uh, it, it, it was uh, not the smoothest effort, and the people who were involved in it uh, weren't chosen because they were good at it. Uh, it. We were involved teaching the course in person to begin with. Uh, we were on site when the the shutdown came. And so we did the best we could. And I I think uh, in most cases, we were not really up to the task. So I think that's why the the effort has gotten such a bad name. When you say it really wasn't as good as it could have been, and you say we weren't up to the task, what are the skills you need to make this work? And what's the technology you need? You know, I think we we still don't know. Uh, nobody had u- even heard of Zoom a year ago, at least I hadn't, and nobody I, I knew had heard of it. And uh, the technology itself uh, that Zoom introduced is rapidly being upgraded and, and, and changed. So we're still in, in a very steep part of the learning curve. But I think the main uh, reason why the recent experience isn't predictive of where things will go is that the people who were involved delivering online instruction in the most recent uh, episodes were not chosen for that purpose. Uh, we just happened to be around when the need arose. I think the the long-run pressure to start shifting instruction online has has really been a matter of cost. It's It's much more expensive to deliver a course in person. The students who get a course in person, on average, get it from an average instructor. That's really just a definitional 
uh, statement. Uh, some of them get it from somebody who's better than average, others from somebody who's worse than average. But the standard is a, a professor who stands in front of the classroom and delivers an average course. And I think what people uh, have shown is that if a lot of resources were poured into the development of a course, which would be possible for a large enrollment course at, at any rate, then it would be possible to deliver something that's quite a bit better than an average course. Uh, you could hire Pixar class animators. You could hire Ken Burns level documentary filmmakers. You could hire uh, award-winning test developers. Uh, the, the whole spectrum of learning materials could be developed with a high level of investment. And then you could hire the most... Uh, informed and charismatic instructor to be the, the main delivery vehicle for the course. And I think then the question would be, uh, if, if those two courses, the one delivered remotely with all those resources behind it, and the one delivered in person by an average quality instructor were available at the same price, which would you rather have? Now, of course, some people would would always opt for the in in person version, but I think it's it's a fair statement that a great many people, if they had experience with both of those options, would prefer the the high level remote course over the the average level in person course. So then it's just a question of how much difference the cost would be uh, the the costs of designing and and producing that remote course are all fixed. They would be high the first time out. But each time another institution signed up to use that course, there'd be no increase in costs other than the cost of hiring the local teaching assistants to help manage it. And the costs, if, if a lot of people adopted it, would be very, very low. So that's the, the ultimate question. Would the cost savings, combined with whatever feelings people have about the different quality dimensions of the two offerings, which one would people choose? You know, you bring up so many interesting points here. You're talking about a professor having to be a really good communicator. Now, how is that going to be received by professors who hopefully are good communicators but haven't been asked to be television stars? And does it change anything about the kind of person who gets hired in the first place? You know, I think this uh, kind of change is one that we've seen in, in a host of other markets. Uh, if you think back to the the early days, the tax advice industry, that was a quintessentially local practitioner industry. The, the biggest accounts were served by the, the best accountants. The next best got the next biggest accounts and so on down the line. Then that, that industry got disrupted really in two waves. First came H&R Block. Uh, their innovation was to show that if you had a few tax professionals on site, then a trained cadre of high school graduates could fill out most of the tax forms uh, and occasionally consult with the experts. So that greatly reduced the cost of delivering essentially the same quality of tax advice. But then came the scores of uh, tax software programs that competed bitterly with one another to see who, who would win that battle. And, and after a period, TurboTax by Intuit was christened the most user friendly, comprehensive product on offer, and it now commands two-thirds of that market. And 
And as they began to gain market share, they were able to uh, use the extra revenue to continue improving their product. And and now they've they've got an almost unassailable lead. You can't afford to take your tax uh, folders to the local accountants anymore because you can get essentially a better uh, uh, service offering from the the TurboTax people at a much lower price. So how does this change the model? Are we talking about fewer professors, more teaching assistants, something different? You know, I think this will happen gradually. Uh, we're not ready for, to, to replace professors yet, uh, but there will be more and more of the class content delivery uh, coming remotely to students. You know, there are some really magnificent videos that already exist in many fields. Uh, I, I stumbled upon one that uh, covers material that's long been a favorite and, and dear subject of my own in one of my advanced courses. Uh, and once I'd seen uh, the professor's video demonstration of the points I try to make, I, I realized there was no way I could possibly do it nearly as well. And so ever since then, my students have been watching his video, and then we've been having a discussion about it since then. So I think that will gradually proceed. And at some point, somebody will organize the whole course, and then we'll just see how much does it cost, uh, how many people will sign up for it, and there'll be a, a, a competition. It won't happen if people aren't ready for it. Well, you're assuming, it sounds like you're assuming that the universities will, and colleges will find this to be a better model, it'll be a more profitable model, and yet the criticism I keep hearing now is, why should we pay this much for a, an online course and we're not getting the whole experience? Do you think students will accept this model or will well, parents the, accept it? The point is it won't cost the same. Uh, the, the promise is that if you really got all the resources together, and produce the best version of a remote course, that would be a product, in effect, that people, for the most part, would find superior to the course they're getting now. Uh, on top of that, it would be dramatically cheaper if it were widely adopted, even though it's much more costly to produce the first version of it. Once you've got that version in the can, uh, it's the same as a movie. It doesn't cost any more if 100 million people see it than if only 100,000 people see it. No, I agree. It's economies of scale, right? Once you've exactly. done it once, yes. So one of the things that surprised me, Robert, about this whole experiment is how many students haven't liked it. You would think that they would like the use of tech and the ability to you know, be anywhere and see the lecture. And yet we've had this blowback. Does that surprise you? Uh, what you have to remember is that the experience they've had of late has not been with the kind of course that we can imagine emerging over time. It's been with a lot of aging Luddites like me who are talking to them over unstable internet connections using technology they, they're not very good at to begin with. And so the fact that they're not thrilled with what we've been offering them shouldn't really surprise anyone. Uh, I think the, the thing that may displace the kind of people who do what I do is a very different animal entirely. But you say displace. Who will be displaced in this reality? You know, I stand in front of a, a classroom with 400 students. Uh, if there were the, the course that could be developed uh, to be delivered remotely uh, along the, the lines of the intensive investment model uh, I've tried to describe, then 
uh, there wouldn't be 400 students. There might be 4 million students. And the cost per student would be vastly lower for an experience that on balance might be significantly better on, on, on the whole. And so I think uh, what that imagines is a diminished role for professors. Uh, we won't need as many of them. Uh, we're not going to go away, uh, all of us certainly, because there's still going to be many courses that are too small to attract uh, the kind of investment for uh, a, a truly excellent remote offering like like we're talking about here. So so there'll still be a need for discussion se- sections. There will be graduate teaching assistants to administ- administer the 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 course locally and there there will be tests and and counseling sessions all there'll be a lot of in-person stuff that remains to be done plus there's the whole uh motive for students to come to college to expand their networks of social contacts for for later life to become certified by an institution that they're uh highly selected and and therefore attractive as potential employees in the job market when they graduate they're 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 will not be a disappearance of the on-campus experience, but for the courses that are big enough to attract the necessary investment, I think we'll expect to see some displacement of the people who used to teach those courses by a handful of, of, of people who are, in the end, much better at it. So if you're talking about bringing in new professors and adjuncts or whatever else, are you looking at a different set of skills that you might not have been looking at 10 years ago? Yeah, quite possibly. Uh, and, and we know already that there are many fields, uh, they're, they're more concentrated in the humanities than elsewhere, where the number of PhDs that are graduating each year is uh, quite significantly beyond the number of new faculty openings. And so those fields have been slow to ad- adjust, but I think in time they are adjusting. And if it turns out that we don't need as many economists to teach the introductory economics course, eventually people will find that it's not worth their while to go to graduate school to get PhDs in economics in the hope of doing that. There's a difference though between doing research and teaching first year micro and macro, is there not? Like those are different Oh yeah. Yeah, no, there there will be other things to do and jobs, uh job openings for people to do them. So there, the the profession's not gonna dry up and disappear, but there will be some change in the mix. Yeah, I just hear this criticism a lot because I believe that you need better communication skills now than you ever have because, you know, we have to be good with technology. You have to be good with communicating whatever you do. And others say, look, we really just need good scientists and good musicians and good economists. And you're asking people to do things that really aren't germane to the profession. Yeah, it's it's always been a a bifurcated job. The, the R1 universities in particular, uh, they don't want you on their staff if you're not producing path-breaking re- research, research that's acknowledged by others to be a useful co- contribution to the body of knowledge in the field. But at the same time, uh, we're under pressure to teach students in a way that keeps the students feeling good about their experience. And so, yes, it. Uh, it, it, it's quite common for people who are good at research to be also good at teaching. Uh, skills tend to cor- correlate across domains, so that's not an unusual thing. But we know, too, that there are people who are first-rate researchers who are not very good at teaching, and I think it would be harder for those people to land jobs that require teaching in the future. 
that's a, a real shift from what we have. Talk a little bit more about your experience about doing this this year. It was business as usual until March, I guess. And then all of a sudden you had to adapt really quickly. Yes, we were uh, five of us uh, teaching a course as a team, uh, and we each had four lectures to give. My four came after the students went home in March, and so all of mine were, were delivered remotely. Uh, what I did was I prepared, normally I lecture from slides standing in front of a, a classroom with 250 students. Uh, I, I took essentially the same slides and to each one uh, drafted a detailed narrative that appeared as notes uh, accompanying each slide. I posted those on on the Canvas website for the course. That's a, a, a new tool that we're just getting familiar with too. Uh, students had access to that. Uh, the promise was that I would talk about some of the most important points uh, by, by my assessment in the slides for about 15 minutes and then break students out into discussion groups of five and, and uh, uh, continue for the rest of the 45 minutes uh, in, the, in that fashion. And the most disappointing aspect of it was the, the scant attendance. Uh, only about 50 or 60 students attended those sessions, uh, any of the ones that we held after the, the break. And uh, partly that was because they're scattered across time, time zones all over uh, the world. But if we provide comprehensive materials that they can access independently on their own schedule, I think it's only to be expected that many of them won't uh, adhere to a regimented schedule of, of tuning in. So, so yeah, it's, it's not clear how that's all going to shake out. We're all learning about Zoom meetings and Zoom discussions. How did you find the Zoom experience compared to the in-class experience when it comes to people asking questions and talking? Uh it's it, it's in some sense uh, better, at least potentially better, in the sense that uh, if you want to have students discuss something that you've asked them to think about, uh, Zoom has a feature that will break the assembled students into groups of five chosen at random so they don't uh, break off and, and talk with their friends. They're assigned to talk with four other students at random, and then you, you can call on them to come back and report on the results of their discussion, I found that a very useful feature and something that I think it would be very difficult to duplicate in an, in a live in-person classroom setting. Is there anything the other, you found lacking? On the other hand, uh, the, the students, uh, by virtue of not being there, uh, 80% of them, uh, didn't really get any, any direct benefit from those discussions and, and the results of the, of the discussions that students reported out weren't always uh, particularly interesting or insightful. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to say that it was a, a successful experiment, but uh, I think it would be reasonable hope that that could be developed into something useful that would, that would be different from what we could do in an in-person classroom setting. I guess we should say, is this because of the pandemic you think we're not going back or was this inevitable anyway? You know, I think the the pressure to shift instruction to uh, remote delivery was had nothing to do with the pandemic initially. It was because uh, the the teaching profession suffers from what's called Baumol's law. Uh, the uh, William Baumol, an economist, said it, it took four mus musicians to perform a 
a string quartet in the 1700s. That's the same as the number it takes to do it today. And uh, musicians haven't gotten any more productive during those centuries. And so it's just much more costly to produce services like that relative to the cost of other goods. Uh, with the cost of tuition and, and other uh, educational expenses going up even more rapidly than medical care costs, we were under enormous pressures uh, to figure out ways to reduce those costs. And, and the idea of delivering a really well crafted course remotely is probably the low-hanging fruit in that domain. Uh, it, it's inevitable that we're going to be forced to try more of that, but the cost pressure associated with the pandemic, I think, will only accelerate the, the trend that we saw already to be doing that. Well, let's look forward. When this fall, I guess we're not exactly sure how this will all pan out, whether it'll be a whole year of instruction, but we'll have a period of one year, two years, three years, where we move to this new world, maybe a hybrid model. Who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers from this? You know, I think this fall, we won't really even see uh, any serious competitors in the online course competition. Uh, you know, if it's anything like the, the competition we saw in the tax software shootout, uh, there will be, uh, let's take my own discipline, introductory economics, there might be a dozen or more really heavily in, invested efforts to develop a, a comprehensive online introductory economics course. Uh, different campuses would adopt different versions. Reviews would come in and we would see uh, which ones seem to be scoring the, the, the biggest successes in which kinds of environments. There would probably be more than a one-size-fits-all outcome there. But but we won't see that really play out in earnest this fall. Certainly, it's much too early for that. But I think we will see uh, a continuation of the trend toward the flipped classroom model. That's the, the approach whereby instructors give students videos to watch and other online resources to try to absorb on their own and then use uh, precious class time not to stand up in front of the group and lecture to them, but to process material that they've already made a serious attempt to grasp on their own. Uh, we'll see a lot more of that, I believe, this fall. And uh, what form it will take, I I'm interested to see. And if we go out further, three or four years, we talk about professors, students, who are the winners and losers there? You know, I think the the competition will eventually recognize a, a, a small number of courses in each big introductory course domain. So you've got physics, you've got calculus, you've got economics, you've got uh, uh, psychology. Uh, the courses that have large enrollments at many colleges and universities are going to have many different packages competing to be the, the one that reviewers think uh, are best. And we'll, we'll start to see, see a shakeout uh, there. I don't, I don't know who who'll produce the entries. I don't know who, which ones are going to be considered the most effective, what, what, the, what the various dimensions uh, are that will receive the greatest weight in the rating schemes. But uh, it'll be interesting to watch that competition unfold. Certainly will be. Robert Frank, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Leonard. Thank you. Robert Frank is a professor at Cornell University. 
To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.